My great-grandfather Jesse Strange was born a slave and freed in his 20s. His 12 children were born free and referred to as the first freeborn generation. In this podcast series, I interview Jesse Strange's descendants in order to document our stories. This is Strange Family Folklore. In June 2021, we Stranges celebrated our 80th continuous family reunion, during which my cousin Ted entertained us with seemingly larger-than-life stories of Uncle Daniel, a.k.a. Uncle Down, who was great-grandfather Jesse's third child. Thank you so much for agreeing to tell me some Uncle Daniel, or you call him Uncle Down, stories. We were all really captivated by your stories at our 80th continuous family reunion when you told us some stories. And it seems like you had to stop yourself from telling more. So I want to give you the opportunity to tell some of the stories that you didn't get a chance to tell. Or you can even retell it because not every one of our podcast listeners were at the family reunion. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and get started then. I have about seven or eight, I guess. Can you first begin to tell us how Uncle Daniel is related to you? Yes, Uncle Daniel is one of my father's brothers. Cousin Ted is named after his father, Theodore Strange Sr., who was one of my great uncles. Okay, out of how many children? Twelve. Wow. Yeah, your grandfather was number 11. My maternal grandfather, Floyd B. Strange Sr., is who Cousin Ted refers to as Uncle Floyd throughout this interview. Right. So your father and my grandfather were the youngest two. Yes, my father was number 12. We lived in North Carolina, which is right across the border. But every weekend, Dad would bring us over to Virginia, so we could maintain our family ties. Plus, in the summertime, when we were out of school, we used to have to come down, and most of the time, we stayed with Uncle Floyd and Aunt B, and we worked tobacco down there. Cousin Ted's Aunt B was my maternal grandmother, Beatrice Strange, who I referred to as Mama B. But Uncle Down was the next one down the road for quite a while before they started building houses between the old home house where Uncle Down and Aunt Carrie lived and Uncle Floyd's house. Aunt Carrie was Uncle Down's wife. So I'll go ahead and get started. Every Christmas, Uncle Down used to go upstairs. They had a big wooden trunk upstairs. And he used to take one of those old jugs of corn, whiskey that is, and he would climb into that trunk because Uncle Down was a lean, about 6'3 or 6'4 tall. And he used to get in that trunk every year at Christmas time, on Christmas Day, and said he's not coming out until New Year's. So that was his thing. That's what he used to tell us. I don't know if he stayed up there all the time or not, but he would get in that trunk while we were there, and then he would close it up and get this jug with him, and we would leave after a while. Another story is that as a young man, he was ambushed on his way home one night and shot in the head in the temple by a policeman. He shot him with a 38 caliber pistol, and he knocked him off his wagon, and he knocked him out briefly, but then Uncle Dale got up and staggered home. Once he got home, Grandma Lucy saw what condition he was in, and she tried to get him to go to the hospital, but he didn't want to go. But eventually, she got him into a mood that he would go to the hospital. So they took him to bed to the hospital, and they removed the bullet out of his head. But the indentation on his right temple was there for the rest of his life. 
And the policeman had shot him when he realized that he didn't kill him. He took his family and he left the area and never came back because Uncle Dale had made a promise. Policeman found out about it that whenever he saw him, he was going to kill him on sight. And the policeman believed it. He left there. But Uncle Dale, from that day on, he had a 38 in his pocket and he carried that whether he was working in church or wherever he was, he had a 38 pistol in his pocket because he had declared that whenever he saw that man again, he was going to kill it. And then sometimes we would ask him from time to time, he said, Uncle Dow, how often do you drink? And he always said, son, how many days in a year? <laughs> so that let us know that there were 365 days in a year, so he was drinking every day. But one thing about him was that Uncle Dow was a very strict disciplinarian. When he told you something, he meant it. And we were kids, we were down there. Herbert, your uncles, and all of us were down there. We'd be down there, Clarence, and Olanda, and all of us, and we'd be messing around doing stuff. Herbert, Clarence, and Olander are three of my uncles. And he used to always tell us before we went to the field, because he had some watermelon patches in the proximity of Uncle Floyd's tobacco fields. And he kept telling us, don't mess with my watermelon. Needless to say, we couldn't hear that, because we didn't have hearing aids at that time. We couldn't hear what he was saying. Because we used to always go by a patch and get a watermelon first thing in the morning and put it in the water so that the water could cool it. We didn't have refrigerators in the field and all that stuff. So whenever we took a break, we'd go out there and pull that watermelon out of the creek and burst by the water running over. That would cool it. So that was real good for us. But we still would do things like messing with his apple cider when he was making cider and stuff. We tampered with everything. We Like normal hard-headed children, whatever he told us not to do, that's what we did. But if you got caught, you were in trouble. And you knew that. Because he had grapevines behind the house. And we used to walk on them. It was down like walking through a pathway, but it had grapes growing on the trusses overhead. And we used to walk under those things and just eat those grapes and things. But it was always a pleasure being down there. But one night, Uncle Dale got drunk. And he went out to a barn. The barn that was across the road, that main road, Cascade Road, he had two barns on the other side of that road from the house. And he slept in the barn overnight, and it was cold. It was wintertime. So three of his toes froze off. So I don't know if you recall him or not, but from that day on, after he went to the hospital and they worked on his feet, he lost those three toes. Gangrene set in on him, and he walked with a limp thereafter. Uncle Dan was a very tough character. He was lean and mean, but he's kind of gentle. You could tell that by the fact that whenever he'd be killing hogs, we'd be down there in the fall of the year, a little later than now, you know, around Thanksgiving, they would be killing hogs. And once they start to scald them and take all the hair off them and all that stuff, and as they start to cut the meat up, Uncle Dan used to cut some slices off the ham and stuff, and he would just eat them raw. So... Sushi wasn't cool then, but he was still eating raw meat at that time. That was back when we were young. Another story I just mentioned is that one night down at Cascade Primitive Baptist, which is right across the street from your grandfather's house, Uncle Dan was carrying. They were trying to get him. They always had been trying to get him to join the church. So he was on the Mona's bed, and they were just praying over him and all of that stuff, and he was just harried. And then during all of this excitement and all, he decided he'd give a heartfelt confession. I love you, Lord. I do love you, Lord. But Lord, there's one thing I got to tell you. I do love my liquor. <laughs> he gave him a heartfelt confession. 
Because Uncle Dan wasn't bashful at all. He was true to whatever he said. That's what he did. He didn't try to be deceitful. He wasn't deceitful at all. Although he was tough and all these other things we said, and he did love his liquor, Uncle Dan was a very gentle, loving person. But he always stood his ground. He would tell you like it is. If you didn't want to know the truth, according to Daniel Strange, don't ask it. Because he'd tell you the truth. In fact, the last thing I mentioned is that when he'd gotten a little older, he was in a coma in the hospital down in Danville, and the doctors called the family in because they thought he was on his way out, and this was going to be the last time. If you wanted to see him alive, you had to come down to the hospital there. And while all the family, Aunt Cindy and all of them from D.C. and all these different places had come down, and they were in the room down there in Danville. Aunt Lucinda, a.k.a. Aunt Cindy, was my great-grandfather Jesse's eighth child. And while they were there, Uncle Dan came out of the coma. He awakened. And he just kind of looked around the room to see. He said, why are all y'all here? He said, I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> and sure enough, he was right. Uncle Dan lived seven more years before he passed away. He lived seven more years. They thought he was gone there. And what year did he pass? Do you remember? Uh, no, I don't. I have to look in my book. Uncle Dan was survived by his wife, Karen. She was the love of his life. He loved her dearly. They didn't have any children. That's just a quick rundown. you have any questions? When you talked about Uncle Dan getting into a trunk for Christmas or the, the yes. holidays, whose house? Was that his own house? That or? was his house, yes. Uncle and Dan was- and Karen lived in the family house, the old family house. That's where his parents lived before him. It was just the two of them, he and Aunt Carrie. Grandma Lucy died in 1942, I think it was, his mother. His daddy died many years before that. In fact, my father was only 12 years old when his father passed. Because he was the youngest. Yeah, so that means his daddy died in 1926. So that, from my perspective, great-grandfather Jesse. Yes. He died in 1926. So, you know what's amazing? These days you hear a lot about police brutality and police shootings. So, when you tell us that the police officer shot Uncle Down and then skipped town because he was more afraid, basically, of this private citizen. Yes. Can you tell us a little more about that? Because that is an unusual thing today. Well, keep in mind that this is a rural community. So everybody knew everybody. So the policeman knew that Uncle Dan either knew where he lived and his family lived, or he could find out. And Uncle Dan didn't play. He was a man of his word. And they were suspecting him of dealing in whiskey, hauling whiskey. But he didn't have any whiskey in. This guy just hadn't been able to catch him or anything, so he had it out for him. So he laid in wait. There was a driveway that went down off the road, 622, to the house. And it was lined on each side with boxwood. As a child, we used to play under those boxwoods. And that man was laying in those boxwoods, and he shot up and down. Okay, so the boxwood is a type of tree or shrubbery? shrubbery that grows real tall. Now, this was during the days of Prohibition? Yeah, but there were about three steels on our property at one time down there. Whose property? Strange's property. Oh, okay. See, I didn't know this side of the family. Yeah, we had a lot of moonshine. When I mentioned to you that Uncle Down was in that barn and the toes froze off, the reason why he's in there because he had about 5,000 pounds of sugar in there. 
So they were using it to steal. And even then now with that sugar, making sure nobody has stolen. How do you get 5,000 pounds of sugar without arousing suspicion? Keep in mind, you're familiar with that area. We owned most of that land right in there. Yes. The, bar- the barns were on our land. They just kept moving sugar in there. Oh, so they weren't getting it from one source. They would get sugar from several sources. Yes. Again, this is the type of stories I didn't grow up hearing. <laughs> Again, back with the police officer, was he also black? No, he was white. They didn't have any black policemen in that area then. Okay, so it wasn't integrated. Absolutely not. Was that police officer on the strange property? Yes. So I guess it's not trespassing when you have probable cause. They weren't too concerned about that. The probable cause was that he didn't kill him. That's what he had intended to do. But I would have thought that the other police officer would have hunted Uncle down. They would have searched for him rather than this police officer uprooting his family and moving away. Well, Uncle Dow hadn't done anything to the police. The policeman shot him. Now, when you're talking about the tobacco field that everybody worked in, was that the strangest tobacco field? Everybody owned it, worked it? Yes. I was talking about the field that owned by your grandfather and Uncle Dow. Those are the two that had fields up in that area. Uncle Floyd and Uncle Dow. How often did you work in the tobacco field? We worked in there just about every summer while we were home. And then when we were in tobacco fields, when they had corn, we had to go down and help with corn also. And corn is worse than tobacco. Why is that? Because it itches. When you're topping corn, it's the husky thing get on you around your head when you're cutting it up at the top so that the eels would fill out full. It gets on you and you have to wear a long sleeve shirts and button up shirts and all to try to keep the husk from getting on your skin. Because it made you it. Okay. So Uncle Down would distill moonshine and he also would work tobacco. Yeah. Now, my mother also told a story about Uncle Down and his horse trick. Did you ever see that? Uh, no. You mean about making them bow down and stuff? Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that? No, I, I'm going to let Belma go with that. <laughs> Belma is my mother. Okay. <laughs> now, what kind of grape were grown on the property as well? What kind of grapes? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the seeded grapes. I don't know the brand or any of that stuff because we were kids. He had trussels. You see trussels like you see wedding parties. They come into these trussels. Well, he had something like that built, and the vines were growing over. It. So when you walked under the vines, and you could eat grapes on the side and on the top. What color were they? Do you remember? Purple, blue, dark, dark blue. Yes. The only reason I'm asking that is that my mother will know. (laughs) She tends to know details like that. I can ask her about that. Turns out, mom didn't know the name of those grapes either. I picture Concord grapes. Because when I was growing up, she had us picking grapes and strawberries. And when I was younger, I mean, I grew up in a military family suburbanite. I do not have a green thumb to save my life. Oh, okay. So when I hear stories of when you guys were farming, I think of myself when my sisters and I would pick strawberries and grape. I don't know if my sisters liked it, but I always act like I was just doing such hard labor. I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah, see, my father didn't farm. Daddy raised the crop one year. He made, I think he said $12, and from then he didn't farm anymore, but we would go over and work on the farm, but he didn't farm. 
We worked primarily in the field press meals, textile meals. And my mother worked for Dan River Meals in Danville. Cousin Ted's mother was Anna L. Strange. And then Danny also worked for the city over in Draper, Eden, you call it now. But it was three cities, the Tri-Cities. Leaks were spraying Draper, and then they consolidated. We would come over because they wanted to keep us out of trouble. So they put us to work. That's one way to do it. You can't make trouble if you're working. That's true. Unless you make trouble <laughs> on the job. <laughs> Did they ever have to discipline you? No. We didn't feel like getting into trouble. Farms, you work from sunup to sundown, and you got a lunch break. And when you got up and you ate dinner, you were ready to go to bed. Now, professionally, Uncle Down was known as a farmer. Yes. So tobacco and corn. Yeah, primarily tobacco. Tobacco is just from late spring to about, what, October? Yeah. Even after school, you went down and you pulled tobacco, you had to cure it. And we used to have to stay at those barns at night to cure that tobacco. And then after you pulled corn during the year, they used to have what they call a corn shucking. That's when all the neighbors would go from one farm to the next, pulling tobacco, and then they would shuck that corn. That was a big thing, to have a corn shucking at your house whenever you were, your time in the rotation. Was that more of a festive mood? It was just work? Both. It was a combo. It was festive because it was more than one family, but it was work because there was work to be done. <laughs> and where would that take place? In a barn? Yes, normally in barns. Sometimes they had what they call corn cribs. That's where they would store their corn. But that wasn't just used for moonshine, right? No, that was used for hog flour and all of those things. Okay, let me back up. We used to make corn flour. Yes. For some reason, I always thought it was wheat. No, your corn meal. If you go to Cascade, anytime you go to Cascade, have your mom to take you down to where the meal was. There was a meal there. It was Cascade meal. And they would take that corn down there and grind it into a meal or flour. So you guys grew up more on cornbread than you did white bread or wheat yeah. bread. Yeah. Because it seems like when I would visit my grandmother, my mother was always making biscuits. Yeah, that was a delicacy. We used to have what they call hoe cakes. And what's a hoe cake? A hoe cake is a biscuit about that big, much bigger. Cousin Ted forms a circle with both hands, about six inches in diameter. They didn't take the time to make those little small daily things. Where you get about 12 biscuits in a pan, they might have four or five hoe cakes. And then you take those big pieces of bread. That's when you put your molasses on them and your butter and all and sop them. You've heard of sopping molasses, haven't you? That's what I used to do with those biscuits. Yes, I know about that. <laughs> Except at Mama B's house, we didn't use molasses. It was always fried apples. Now, I would eat molasses at home. Yeah, but we used to make molasses down at Uncle Jess's house. They used to grow sugar cane down there and have to sit on those mules. They had a mule and a grinding machine, and they would pick the stalks of cane down in there, and the mule would walk around in a circle. They used to put kids on that mule, because the mule wouldn't move unless somebody was on it. <laughs> Each child would have to sit on that for so long until they felt like he was going to get drunk and fall off, so they would take you, and then they would put another child on that, and they would walk around in that circle, and they would keep putting cane down in there, and they would grind it to get the juice out of it. Now, you said until the kid felt drunk, Yes, until they could notice it looked like the kids going to fall off the mule. Oh, because they'd get dizzy? 
Yes, you go off in that circle, you get dizzy after a while. Okay, because I was about to ask, how fast was that mule going to be dizzy? He's going very slowly, but you said, no, man, you know why you're going to fall off that mule. And they would know about how long you could stand it. So they would stop the mule, put another child up there, and then tell the mule to get up, and he'd just start walking again, right in a circle. So that would be like an hour or a half hour? Yeah. And in the meantime, somebody's out in the field cutting that cane, bringing it up to the house, and then bringing it up to the grinder, and then we would walk up. Then uh, get the juice out of it, squeeze the juice out of it to make uh, sugar cane and make molasses. Molasses, right. But you guys didn't have enough sugar cane to make 5,000 pounds of sugar, right? Absolutely not. Okay. I'm still fascinated by that number because that's a lot of moonshine with 5,000 pounds of sugar. That's how we learned to drive. We used to drive what they call a bush car. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) (laughs) A bush car was a car that they would... Once they'd make the liquor and they would put it on there and they would case it, put it in the uh, half-gallon jars and put it in the cases and we would put it on the car and bring it up to the road. And then they would transfer it to a road car. And the road car is what it actually distributed, take it to places. But the bush car was just used to carry it from the steel up to the road. So that wasn't mass-produced? It was a converted mass-produced car, yeah. What did it start off as? A truck? Most likely a truck or a car. They could take the, the trunk and all that stuff out of a car and all the back seats. And just have one seat in it, and that was a driver. Just let one person ride in. That's about it. It was a lot of fun. We grew up and we worked together. That's why I guess the people in my generation are so close, much closer than the others, because we knew each other. We had to sleep together and work together and play together. We spent a lot of time together. So we didn't start getting distributed until later on. What do you think caused that? People's jobs and the relocation. They're more, people are more mobile now than they were when I was a child. But you also served time in the military, right? Yes, 22 years. About the same time as my father. That's correct. I retired in 1984. I want to say that my father retired in 81. My father is Carl Wayne Roberson. He confirmed he served in the Air Force for 22 years and retired in 1981. And then he worked civil service, and he retired from that. And then he started bagging groceries. Yeah, Fort Bragg. I was stationed at Bragg three times. I was with the Special Forces group at Fort Bragg. Okay. But my father was at Pope Air Force Base. You were Army, and he was Air Force. Yeah, yeah, joined. All of our planes were out at Pope. We'd have to go to Pope to get on aircraft to go make jumps as airborne trooper. I didn't realize you were a paratrooper. Yes. Yeah, I went to jump school in December of 62, 1962. I want to say that's before either one of my sisters were born. Actually, my sister Renee was born in January of 1962. I was born in 1970. Yeah, I was in Vietnam my second time when you were born. I went over in 66 first, 67, and 69 to 71. But do you think joining the military is what first started our family moving away? No, some of them had already moved. The other child had been living in Pennsylvania. Not Sydney, not Annie, not Vi, lived in D.C. Uncle Charles, Aunt Annie, and Aunt Viola were great-grandfathers, fourth, sixth, and seventh children, respectively. But these weren't factory jobs, were they? Not what they had, no. Was it working for the government? 
I think some were, not all, some did domestic work. And everyone would just come back at least once a year for the family reunion. That's correct. At least once a year. Because I know my mother is one year older than our reunion. Right. Yeah, she's one year older than me. I was born on the same year that the reunion started. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then we had relatives up in Philadelphia also, because that's where my grandmother's sister, Annie, they were in Philadelphia. I want to thank you for joining me this evening. I appreciate you helping me document our family stories. That's why I call it folklore, because some people remember things slightly differently. Right. Or they'll focus on one thing because that's what captivated them. So it is nice to have multiple points of views. Well, well, you enjoy yourself. Thank you so much.